If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the first of our August 2012 podcasts. This week's episode comes from the Tower of London and features a lecture from historian Saul David on the history of the British Army. It's the first of a two-part series that will conclude next week with a story of the Royal Navy. If you like what you hear, don't forget you can find plenty more great history content in our print publication, BBC History Magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus, we're also available on the Kindle and the Apple iPad. For more details of all of that, and for great subscription deals, please visit our website, historyextra.com. You can also get in touch with us at facebook.com forward slash historyextra and twitter.com forward slash historyextra. Earlier in the year, we ran a series of lectures at the Tower of London. For the first of those events, historians Saul David and Sam Willis considered the histories of the Royal Navy and the British Army, and argued the importance of each in transforming Britain into a global power. This week, we'll begin with Saul David and the role of the British Army. 
I'm not going to uh, attack the Navy for a very sensible reason. It did play a hugely significant role. But I think when I, when, while I was researching this book, I certainly didn't go into it with any agenda, but I, it began to be increasingly clear to me that the Army had played a role that I felt had been under-recognised, not only by historians, but also and through the writing of history, the general public. The perception of what the Army did was relatively underplayed. Partly because I suspect an awful lot of the wars that the uh, army played a key role in, um, particularly the war of the Spanish succession, the Seven Years' War, were wars or are wars that uh, we don't know that much about. They didn't tend to have the good and bad that tends to make campaigns and wars of the past uh, read quite widely, like the Napoleonic Wars, the First and Second World War, where you've got quite an obvious demon on one side, and I suppose we'd like to think that as Britons, uh, good on the other side. But actually, uh, if we look at the War of the Spanish Succession, I'll talk about it in a bit more detail, particularly with uh, reference to uh, the great man uh, Marlborough. But if you look at the War of the Spanish Succession, actually there was a demon on the other side, a man who wanted to take control of not only the continent, but also the Channel Coast that would have enabled him effectively to neutralise our rise to greatness. Um, if you think of British foreign policy from the 16th century to the 20th century, it's, the main preoccupation has always been to prevent a single power from dominating the continent and getting control of the Channel uh, Coast. It's the reason why ultimately we have had to fight wars on the continent as well as at sea. And it's that fighting on the continent, physically fighting on the continent, on the land, that can, of course, only actually be undertaken by soldiers. Well, of course, even in that context, the Navy plays its role. It plays a support role. But when you come up against people who are determined to dominate the continent, you need soldiers to do it, soldiers on the ground. And it's that story I'm really going to run through today, some of, the, some of the high points and some of the significant moments. Now, to put this all into context, we need to go back to the start of the British Army one quick quote I wanted to make, um, rather meanly, because of course he is a naval historian, but as to armies on the continent, it is unquestionable that a continental victory requires a continental commitment. Now I suppose the question you've got to ask yourself is whether in all these major wars that we're, we're, I'm referring to in particular, I've mentioned two of them, the War of the Spanish Succession, the Seven Years War, and of course the Napoleonic Wars. These are the three great wars, I suppose, that underpin Britain's rise to greatness. You have to decide, and I will try and persuade you, that actually the continental aspect of that fighting was hugely important. But if, as, uh, if, if uh, Nick Roger is right, and I'm sure he is, he recognises that to win those continental wars does require uh, British military forces. It also requires, importantly and interestingly, British gold. British gold plays a hugely important role too. But let's talk a little bit about the army. And the army begins in its modern form, the form we all know it today, in 1660, the return to the throne of Charles II. He is determined that the fate of his father will not befall him, and therefore he raises what he calls his guards and garrisons, effectively a personal bodyguard. And it is the start of Britain's standing army. We've never had field regiments in being uh, in peacetime all the time. This is the first standing army, and it's the start of the modern British army. But it was only 4,000 when it started out, and by the end of his reign, it's only 14,000. But 1688 is a, is a significant moment. It's the most significant moment in the early stage of the, of the British Army, because it's the time that the British Army, of course, releases itself from the shackles of being a personal bodyguard to the then, of course, very unpopular King James II, and 
uh, switches, or at least is switched after the glorious revolution, re revolution to being firmly under the control of Parliament. If, if, if there was one absolutely key significant moment of the Glorious Revolution, it wasn't so much the reaffirming of uh, the limitations to royal power. There was very little actually in the, in the Glorious Revolution that had changed what was already in existence. But what was new was the placing of the army, the military generally, but the army in particular, firmly under the control of Parliament. And from that point on, the army is to be used as a, an instrument of state, and it is to be used as an instrument that will uh, further British foreign policy, obviously, and ultimately underpin the rise to greatness. But we need to put this into context, because in 1688, the army is a broken force. It ha a lot of it has switched sides, of course, to William of Orange, and uh, it's lost its discipline. It needs to be reforged into a fighting force, and it needs to be reforged very quickly. But what is the context, even the broader political context? You would not, I think, or you would, you would be hard-pressed to suggest that Britain was anything more than a second-rate power, uh, certainly compared to France at this stage. The France of Louis XIV, he is, of course, the, uh, the demon that I was referring to before, who wants to take over Europe if he can, um, has had a relatively unbroken run of successes in military terms. And the armies, the French armies of the day, are considered to be uh, without um, uh, equal. Um, for good reason. They've introduced a lot of reforms that have made it a very effective fighting instrument. The key to the rise of the British army being able to take on and ultimately best the French in the field is, of course, the man I've already referred to, the Duke of Marlborough. He, at this stage, is the uh, Earl of Marlborough and originally John Churchill. He, he comes from a West Country background. He shows relatively little early uh, uh, indication that he is going to become the great commander. He does because he, he has no uh, huge opportunity. The, the wars against the Dutch and, of course, against the French in the 1670s, he does all right, but he's not taking his soldiering hugely seriously. And it's quite interesting that in, in 1702, when he first gains command of the armies in the Netherlands, he is 52 years old, and uh, I suppose to put that into context, Wellington and Napoleon at Waterloo are 46, and that's at the end of their careers. And this is the start of him actually uh, gaining a serious command. But why is Marlborough significant? Well, he's significant because he wasn't only a great battlefield general, he wasn't only a great a strategician and, a, and, a, and a, a natural diplomat, he was also an innovator. He was a great trainer of men and a great motivator. In fact, I can't think of a single area of military expertise that he didn't excel in when he had the opportunity. And William of Orange, who never entirely trusted Marlborough with very good reason, um, because he stayed in contact with his initial patron, James II, for the rest of his life. He was secretly writing to James II. And at one stage, of course, is stripped of his titles uh, because of a suspicion that there's contact between the two. Quite rightly, that suspicion was actually um, uh, true. But even William of Orange, who never entirely trusts him, recognises his military abilities and he gives him uh, the crucial task post-1688 of reforging the army and he does it very well. And one of the things that I've already mentioned, one of the key aspects I've found in great generals is uh, they tend to be good trainers and good motivators. Uh, Slim, of course, is another wonderful example of this. And when you look at the great commanders in history, those tend to be two of the overlooked aspects, but they're hugely important. 
He was also a tactical innovator. He, he, he introduced, uh, or an innovator generally, he introduced, as I mentioned in my series, the, the Boots, Bullets and Bandages series, he introduces this sprung card, doesn't sound much, but it enables his armies to move at, they argue, twice the rate of their opponents. So that in the Blenheim campaign, for example, they can, he can literally outmarch his opponent. He can get to a place where his opponent doesn't expect him to be. The other thing, of course, he's brilliant at is logistics. And logistics are, as I make the point in, in my series, and I will make again here, uh, another hugely underestimated aspect of um, generalship. Uh, but it plays a huge role, particularly when you have a long war, such as the War of the Spanish Succession. So I'll move rapidly, and I, I can talk to you all day about more, but I simply don't have time. But what are the, what are the main beats of the story? Well. I think, ironically, one of the reasons the war of the Spanish succession and the army's role in it is not that well-known or is under-recognised is because it happens to back to front. In 1702, when Marlborough takes over command, I think I've got a picture of Marlborough uh, here somewhere. This will give you a rough idea of what a soldier looked like in 1685. Um, 1685, of course, is significant in that the Battle of Sedgemoor, which uh, really is Marlborough's first a chance to command, a separate command. He wasn't actually the senior commander at, at Sedgemoor, but he did most of the fighting that day because his superior wasn't actually present when the battle starts. Um, that is what a soldier would have looked like at the time. And what, what Marlborough does, he does two things. He, he introduces the spring card, or at least he promotes the introduction of the sprung card, which speeds up the movement of armies. But something else, um, uh, not that well recognised, is the use of tactics in relation to this new technology, the musket, the flintlock musket, which was introduced in the 1790s at about the same time as the socket bayonet. Combined at the same time, all of a sudden you've got an all-purpose infantryman, and that's fine, and the bayonet on the whole was used for defensive purposes. But what Marlborough does so brilliantly during all of his battles against the French is, is utilise this rolling volley. So you've now got a, a musket that enables the infantryman really to be dominant on the battlefield. He now takes on the single most important role. And they introduce a system in the British Army, or, or the, the method they use and which uh, Marlborough refines so beautifully, is the platoon system of fire. They fire from separate sections of the line so that you've got this rolling fire going into the enemy and at no stage is your whole line ever undefended in terms of it's all its weapons are unloaded. It's a very clever system and as one bit of the line is firing the other bit is reloading so they're always ready to move in blocks. It's a kind of synchronized firing system that I suppose Sam may well be talking about as far as the Navy's concerned. I, I suspect it probably came in a little bit earlier than the, than the Army. But Marlborough uh, put all of these things together, all of his talents together in his most famous campaign in 1704, the Blenheim campaign. I think I've got a couple of um, maps of the Blenheim campaign. Again, it's a there he is. I mean, that was actually a, 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 an illustration done in 1722 on his death, and you can see the kind of eugolic kind of image of him as this, of this great warrior. Um, in the context of 1944, he would have been Eisenhower, Montgomery, and Brooke rolled into one. He had the sort of responsibility that no military commander before or since has had. He was commander-in-chief of the British Army. He was deputy commander of the Dutch Army in the Netherlands. He, he was ambassador extraordinary to the uh, <coughs> Netherlands, which meant he had 
quite a lot of diplomatic and political power. And in all those responsibilities, he excelled. But the, the march to the Danube is really his high point. And, and, I, and I'd just like to underpin the significance of the march to the Danube if we're talking about the army and Britain's rise to greatness. Um, I think the march to the Danube is significant in lots of ways. The, the logistics of the march was extraordinary. He would, he would arrange for his men to, to only march in the early uh, hours of the day when it was at its coolest. They would always stop when the sun got, got hot. Um, he made sure that they wouldn't be exhausted. He got boots for them halfway along the route. Um, he arranged for provi provisions all the way along the way. I mean, it was absolutely brilliantly organized. But what's significant, even more significant about this march, is the moral courage that Marlborough displayed in uh, undertaking it in the first place. In a nutshell, the Austrians were in danger of being knocked out of the war of the Spanish succession. The British were allied to the Austrians, uh, chiefly in the Netherlands, of course, and they were fighting against the Spanish and the French. And if the Austrians, the empire as it was, had been knocked out of the fray, it could have been the end of, of the Grand Alliance's attempt to prevent um, Louis XIV from taking over as the dominant force in Europe. And this march was crucial. It was morally courageous because the Dutch did not want him to do it, and therefore he did it anyway. He didn't actually tell them. Um, he also knew that he had many political enemies in Britain who were just waiting for him to fail, and they expected him to fail. He got all the way down to um, uh, Bavaria, where the key uh, fighting took place. And when he actually fought the Battle of Blenheim, and there's a lot of turning and throwing going on before the battle, uh, he is in a position where he has everything to lose at that actual fight. He's, he's got about 54,000 men at Blenheim. The French and Bavaria, Franco-Bavarians have 60,000. They are dug into a very strong defensive position. I've got a, a picture of the battlefield somewhere. There we are. That's the Allied position there, Marlborough at the top. Uh, the French and the Bavarians down the bottom. Now, they were in an incredibly strong position. He still attacked them. He attacked them and he, and he kept on attacking and then there always comes that crucial moment, or they did come at Blenheim, when uh, his tactical brilliance uh, came into play. And that was the key moment, the moment that I think Clausewitz, the, uh, the great military theorist, calls coup die. The recognition of a key moment where you are going to launch your main attack. And he does it halfway through the afternoon. The French centre is on the point of disintegration. The, the, it's a question of launching the attack at the right moment, when it's at its weakest. He does this. And what's significant about this battle, uh, two or three things are significant. One of them is that it's the first major victory by an English army on the continent since uh, Agincourt for 300 years. The second thing that's significant is the French haven't been beaten in this way uh, in the whole of Louis XIV's uh, lifetime. It's the first massive blow. And the other thing that's significant is rarely did you have a battle of destruction like this because the Franco-Bavarians were wiped out pretty much. A, a, a small chunk of the army escaped but the casualties were 40%. I mean in, in those days that was absolutely uh, unprecedented. And it put England, Britain, uh, as it was to be um, uh, in a few years' time, it put us, or it put our soldiers on the map for the first time. This was when we wrested from the French the military leadership of Europe. Now, uh, Marlborough had many other victories, of course, during his career. And I think when I made that point before about the War of the Spanish Succession being under-recognized is partly because his greatest victory, Blenheim, in the combination of strategy and operation and tactics, 
came, came relatively early on. And the, the sadness of the war with the Spanish succession is it sort of fizzles out at the end. And yet be under no illusions that the victories that uh, Marlborough wins, not only here, but of course Ramillies two years later, Oudenard in 1708, the piercing of the Nerplu ultralines in 1711, uh, and even the taking of the barrier fortresses, his wonderful first campaign in 1702, absolutely in my mind made it almost impossible for the French ultimately to achieve their objective. Did the Navy play a part in, in this war? Of course they did. And actually, what, what we end up with at the, at the war of um, the Spanish succession, as I'm sure Sam will expand upon, is really the, the start of our, our rise to imperial greatness. We already gain, had gained control of, of West Indian stations, sugar islands. We were beginning to, you, you are beginning to see the rise of empire. What's it was a war that didn't end with a, a clear-cut victory, but the, but the peace treaty um, that was signed in 1713 and another one in 1714, but we were chiefly interested in the one in 1713, was of chief benefit to the British. And I would argue that without uh, Marlborough's genius and the increasingly impressive performance of his soldiers, uh, it is extremely likely that Louis XIV would have uh, prevailed. Now, of course, we get into the realms of the maritime strategy and the continental strategy. My feeling's always been, as a historian, actually, you need both. And I think probably the best example of that is the Seven Years' War. So I'm going to gallop rather rapidly on to the Seven Years' War because we've got quite a lot of ground to cover. Siege of Quebec, we'll come to that in a second. I, I think... Um, the Seven Years' War reminds me very much of a, of a board game I used to play in the, uh, when I was a teenager called Campaign. And in Campaign, the, the, the way you won the game was by making alliances with different uh, uh, members of the game. And if you were clever enough about making these alliances and breaking these alliances, you usually prevailed. Well, the Seven Years' War kind of sums up that that's exactly what was happening in the 18th century because only a few years earlier, during the War of the Austrian Succession, rather cute, confusing with the War of the Spanish Succession, 1740 to 1748, we had been fighting on the side of the Austrians against the Prussians. French, of course, are always our opponents in these wars. Well, Seven Years' War, turned it on its head. We're now fighting with the Prussians against the Austrians and the French. And it's terribly confusing, isn't it? But the one certainty you've got in all these wars is we're fighting against the French. And I think that the, war, the, the Seven Years' War absolutely underpins, in my mind, this... this importance of the of the two strategies running side by side there were people in britain um uh, pitt wasn't one of them luckily pitt of course plays the key role as a as a politician during the seven years war but there were people who said well we shouldn't be fighting on the continent at all we should just be concentrating on colonies and naval battles surely that's the way to go about things well no i don't think so because although uh, the uh, campaigns like the quebec campaign absolutely show you know, the, the, the key importance of the Navy. Without, without the Navy, you don't fight in Quebec. I think what's interesting about this campaign, actually, um, well, I'll mention a little bit about Wolfe, because it's, it's uh, if I've got time, that is, um, because he is one of the great what-ifs, in my opinion. I mean, he, people remember him for this campaign, and they forget that he was, uh, he, he was a genius a long time before Quebec. He, he completely changed the way the British Army fought in a tactical sense, because he introduced a new firing drill. Actually, he adapted, adapted it from the Prussians, uh, the alternate fire system, which was a refinement of the, of the rolling um, uh, platoon system I talked about that Marlborough used to use. But something more important than that, he introduced the use, you might be surprised to hear this, of a bayonet 
in, off, in an offensive way for the first time. So before then it had been thought of, we'll use this if cavalry attack, or we occasionally we can use this against infantry, a defensive weapon. Wolf said, no, you use the bayonet in an offensive action. You use the musket to stop the enemy, and then you go in with the bayonet. Then you don't need to load your weapon again. You use it uh, a, a, as an arm blanche, basically, as a sword. And uh, he, he introduced this system initially into his regiment, the 20th Regiment, which, by the way, he commanded at the age of 22 and very quickly turned into the finest in the service. And bit by bit, his idea spread throughout the army, not without a, an inevitable amount of opposition, as you can imagine. But by Quebec, he was 32. He was a major general or a local major general. And he was commanding an amphibious, one of the most uh, optimistic uh, and difficult amphibious operations I think British forces have ever launched. Of course, the Navy were absolutely key to this. But what you see in this operation is the two working hand in hand. And I think the whole of the Seven Years' War is an, uh, absolutely sums up that point. Not only do you need the Army work, working very effectively with the Navy, you also need the Continental uh, fighting going hand in hand with the co colonial and maritime fighting. I'm not going to talk much about the continental fighting because we don't have a wonderful character like, um, uh, like Wolf to, to discuss. But wh what I will say is that probably far more important battle in terms of the outcome of the, of the Seven Years' War, and again it sort of ends relatively untidily, but there's no question who gets the best out of the final treaty, that is Britain again. Um, but probably the, the best, the most significant battle, or one of the most significant battles, is Minden. It's Minden that takes place in 1759 on the continent, of course. And again, I make the point that, that you, uh, you can win as many colonies as you like, and you can, and you can best the uh, French at sea as many times as you like. And of course, we have one of the most famous victories of all, uh, which again, I'm sure Sam will be, will be bigging up quite rightly. Um, but... Those victories in 1759 also included Minden. And Minden is significant because if we can't stop the French advance on the continent, and bear in mind they're, they're, they also, they're also allied with the Austrians, then sooner or later this nightmare scenario, which is the loss of the Channel Coast, is going to come to pass, and that is what underpins our naval supremacy. So uh, you have this circular argument, or circular problem all the time, and I think it's been much under-recognised. Absolutely vital role. The British contingent, remember NAM Rogers' quote, the British contingent has played a vital role in any major war of survival, and these were wars of survival. I think wars have become relatively unpopular in Britain because we don't really believe that recent wars are wars of survival. But these were. These were wars that threatened our existence as an independent nation, and the army in these wars plays an absolutely fundamental role. Uh, just to say a couple of words about Quebec, because it would be mean not to. I mean, it, they've sailed... Beyond that, he's, he's, he's in an impossible situation, Wolf, at Quebec. He can, he, he's been there too long. He's lost men. He's also lost a bit of nerve, actually. He's lost a bit of confidence. But the one thing he never loses is cooperation with the naval commanders. And they, uh, or at least a combination of him and they, realise that maybe the key to this battle is not attacking Quebec from the lower point, which is the main city there. It's actually coming beyond it. What they, what they finally do is they land above Quebec. I mean, this is upriver here. The river's coming up this way. And they scale these cliffs until they get onto the heights of Abraham there. It's, it's a nighttime uh, amphibious operation that had every reason to fail. And when it was finally launched, Wolfe uh, put all his resources into it. Every, everything was in, in this battle, in the sense that his whole army was involved. If they get defeated, it's the end. Um, 
It was a huge risk, in other words. And some people have said there was an element of desperation in Wolf, Wolf's uh, planning. But there was also an element of genius, too. The final plan that they settled on, the landing at night, the use of these uh, stormtroopers, the light infantry, as they were at these. This is the very early days of, li of light troops. And the man who led the light infantry up the slope was a man who I'm going to mention very briefly in, in relation to the American War uh, of Independence in a minute. Um, he was a man who who in these early days was a protege of Wolfe and a man, William Howe, he, Lieutenant Colonel William Howe was in charge of the light infantry. And he was a man who was seen, obviously um, Wolfe doesn't survive the battle, as probably the next best thing. And I think one of the great what-ifs about Wolfe is what would have happened if he'd been commanded, commanding the English army at the start of the American War of Independence. But anyway, nevertheless, I'll quickly, quickly run through the battle. They get up onto the slope. The French... The, what they should have done is waited, 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 and let the British attack them. But they don't. They attack the British. And so um, Wolfe is able to use his brilliantly honed tactics. He has instructed his men to wait until the French have, a, have advanced to within 30 or 40 yards and not to fire. And, of course, this takes incredible discipline to do this because all the while the French are firing at them as they're advancing. Now, the numbers on the day, we think they're roughly about equal, actually, 4,500 on each side. And the French are attacking and the English are waiting. They've climbed the cliff. They're, you know, a lot of them are pretty exhausted, but they're, they're sorting themselves out. And Wolfe says, wait, the French are advancing, they're firing. And the destruction of the... Of course, people are being hit by this fire, including Wolfe himself, who's shot in the wrist. Um, it's not a mortal blow, but he's already injured, and it, which I suppose also goes to show how dangerous it was to be a military commander at this time. And uh, finally, they get within range. The order is given. The rolling volleys ring out, and then they go in with the bayonet. And the battle is almost over before it starts. It's, it's literally won and lost in those two minutes. As the advance is being put in and they're driving the French back, that is when Wolfe uh, receives his mortal blows. And I, I say again, we will never know what he could have done in America because um, here's the picture of his death. I love this picture. It bears no relation to reality. Wolfe had, uh, Wolf had no time for Native Americans, actually, interestingly. He wasn't very PC in that, in that sense, and certainly there wouldn't have been one there um, <laughs> looking rather wistful at his death. It, he, he didn't have a, a large a number of his staff around him either. Uh, quite a lot of them were being hit by this point, a little bit like um, Wellington's staff at Waterloo. He only had one or two people. They'd carried him away, uh, and he expired in a rather kind of, you know, uh, sad and grim way. There's a much pithier or at least more accurate uh, picture than that, but that is, of course, the most famous one, and I suppose it's the one you see most times. Um, yeah, we moved on to Wellesley. So I'll just quickly talk about William Howe and, and, and the American War of Independence. I think one of the great myths of the American War of Independence is that uh, there's an assumption the British Army didn't do very well. Actually, it does fine. If you look at the early stages of the American War of Independence, first two years are the key years, 1775 to 1777. Very few Americans, by the way, you, you, very few Americans are convinced they can beat us militarily. They're hoping for a political victory. They are, are convinced that if they can prevent us from destroying their forces, sooner or later they may, they, they, they may come out on top. But, and also bear in mind that you've got an awful lot of people in America at this time who are roughly considered to be loyalists, but people who naturally see a connection with Britain politically as the way to go. They just don't want us to have as much control as we had to have. And of course, you know, the key issue is taxation. But Howe, William Howe, is a, a fascinating character because he has 
had a long association with North America from the Seven Years' War. And during the Seven Years' War, we were fighting on the same side as the American colonists, or at least they were fighting on our side. And a lot of quite close relationships were formed with the colonists. And Howe had formed a particularly close relationship with the colonists because his brother, who, who again is another of the great what-ifs of, of British military history, we'll never know what, how great a commander he could have become, Viscount Howe, as he, as he was known. Howe is killed in, in one of the Canadian uh, operations. And uh, the, I think it's the citizens of Boston raise a, a, a monument in his honour. And this is, you know, William Howe is very touched by this. And when he takes over as commander of the British Army in 1775 in, in um, America, he and his brother, who is soon to become the chief of the Navy, um, who Sam may or may not want to say a few words about, w between them were quite keen, unofficially, to give the Americans a chance to come to their senses and to come to a political arrangement. Of course, as the fighting went on, this became increasingly less likely. But what it meant, we suspect, and certainly when you look at the, some of the military campaigns, you cannot believe how incompetent Howe is, because he is a good soldier. He is quite a, a clever soldier. He, he launches a number of attacks, uh, for example, in the, in the early battles for New York, that show a real uh, military ability. And yet, when he has the chance to trap the Americans American army and, and destroy it, he doesn't take that chance. And it's not just once, it's repeatedly. And there is a suspicion among historians that actually what he was chiefly interested in, and certainly his private correspondence would indicate this, is not uh, uh, making it impossible for the Americans. It is, he didn't want to destroy them militarily. He wanted to give them a chance to, to come to some kind of negotiated arrangement. In other words, he was too sympathetic to their cause, and his brother was the same. Now, the last thing I'll say on the American War of Independence, um, because it's quite hard to uh, get into what-if history. I, I'm absolutely convinced that the war was there for the winning if a different commander had been in place, certainly if a wolf had been in that position, certainly if a Marlborough had been uh, in, in the chief command. And even though he didn't actually want to destroy the Americans, he almost managed it. And another thing I'll say about the British performance, the performance of British soldiers during the American War of Independence, they don't lose a single set-piece battle against the colonists, despite what you may think, or despite what you've, what you've read. When, when it comes to a stand-up set-piece fight, the British soldiers win virtually every time. Of course, they're worn down in a guerrilla sense. They surrender at Saratoga and they surrender at Yorktown. And the last thing I'll say about Yorktown, of course, is that I'm not into bashing the Navy, as you know, and this is one of the few examples of the Navy um, being bested by the French at this stage. And, and I, I suppose you could argue, you can argue it both ways. You could, you could argue that the, the, the naval defeat at Chesapeake costs us the American War of Independence. I don't think it did, actually. I think it's a done deal already, well before then. Um, but I suppose if you were being generous, you can also argue that as soon as it's clear that the Navy no longer has supremacy, the army's really up the creek, and, and certainly in, in, a, in a continental sense, that is, that, uh, sorry, in a, in a maritime and colonial sense, that is true. Let's move on to the last of the, of the major characters in the story, Wellesley. And I've got, a, I've got an opportunity to give him a, a decent bit of room. Actually, I feel a little bit ambivalent about Wellesley. I mean, he was a wonderful commander. I also feel he was a very lucky commander in the sense that there were certain moments in his military career where probably um, he, a lesser not so well connected officer may not have carried on in his career. It's interesting when he, um, uh, you know, his early, early years at school, he was a bit of a duffer at Eton, and uh, he was taken out of Eton because he wasn't doing very well, and also because his family uh, did not have the sort of money it used to have. 
And they thought uh, they had a little conflict between them. That is his brother. His father had died a couple of years earlier and his mother. And they decided the best thing for him is to put him in the army. Now, the Wellesley family had no a connection with the army. It was not a military family at all. It was a family much more interested in music and politics. And uh, he was considered to be the least bright of the four sons, the four surviving sons. And what should we do with him? We'll put him in the army. I think his mother's quote is, food for powder and nothing more. He was effectively cannon fodder. Um, and they, they had no, no expectation that he was going to rise to the heights he did. And for his first six years, he very much um, played that out. Unlike his great opponent, ultimately, Napoleon, Wellington spent none of the first six years of his life uh, actually learning the business of soldiering. He was aide-de-camp to the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland and actually spent most of his time in, in Dublin partying. And it was only when the, uh, the, the, war, uh, the revolutionary war with France broke out in 1792 that he now began to take his soldiering more, more seriously. And I think that um, uh, Wellesley is important because his career... I suppose you can use him, his career as a mirror for the British Army. The British Army, by the beginning of the American War of Independence, by the beginning of the uh, French Revolutionary War, by the beginning of most of the wars that I've talked about, although I haven't had a chance to really concentrate on this theme, uh, has a major problem, and that is that after, after the previous war, there tends to be quite serious military retrenchment. At the end of the uh, Seven Years' War, for example, the army contracted in re relatively short time from 203,000 to 45,000. And of course, if, if there's that amount of, uh, if there's that bigger cut in military spending, all the old advantages, all the weaponry, and it, it all gets lost in the, in the ensuing years. And by the start of the American War of Independence, even though I have tried to kind of reassess the, the, uh, the role of the British Army in that war, it, it was a very, very different force to the force that had started fighting the, um, uh, or the force that had ended fighting, more to the point, the Seven Years' War. Now, move that on, and you've got a lost war, because although the British Army performed reasonably well during the American War of Independence, it was a hell of a blow to morale to actually lose a war. I mean, put it into context, the American War of Independence is the only major war that the British Army has lost in its existence. You could say it was bested in the Transvaal, but, you know, there's a, a small-scale stuff, comparatively speaking. And, of course, it famously loses lots of battles in lots of wars, but it doesn't lose a whole war. This is very, very unusual. And, of course, that, that has its effect in, in terms of morale, in terms of the type of person who was becoming a soldier. And by the early 1790s, when, when Wellington fights his first campaign in the Netherlands, it is a, it, it's an incredibly inefficient badly officered, badly supplied. It goes out and fights in the, in the, uh, the Low uh, Countries campaign of 1794 to 95 without any kind of proper medical equipment. Um, the soldiers aren't being properly fed. All the lessons that, that, well that Wellesley and ultimately Wellington uh, will pick up himself, which is that you cannot fight a battle unless the troops have been, you know, the logistics are sorted, the administration is there, the morale is right, the, so the officers are good, you know, the officer-soldier relationship. All of this was at its lowest ebb at the, at, the, um, uh, at the beginning of the Revolutionary Wars. And Wellesley, I suppose, is a symptom of that, because if you think about it, he's given command, or at least he's bought, his brother buys him command of the 33rd Regiment in 1793, the beginning of the war against uh, France. He hasn't any experience as a soldier at all. He hasn't been near a regiment. He knows nothing of soldiering, and yet he's literally able to buy his way into the command of an army, of a battalion. What was fortunate for, or fortunate about Wellesley is he was a natural soldier, and once he did take his soldiering seriously, he picked up the 
business of soldiering very, very quickly indeed. Now, uh, the beats of the story, I suppose, are... First of all, what is the British Army doing? Well, it loses, or it's, it's badly humiliated in that initial campaign in 1794-5. Um, there's another campaign which doesn't end uh, particularly well in 1799. Um, you get a string of, what would you call it, disasters, I suppose. You've got the uh, campaign down in South America in 1806-1807. Even the famous... Uh, Defeat turned into victory at Corona is, is a huge strategic defeat for the British in 1808. And the one chink of light, apart from Abercrombie's success against the French in, in um, Egypt in 1801, was Wellesley and the, and the victories he's winning. First of all, in India, and I'll just say a couple of things about his victories in India. I think the most significant thing about his soldiering and what he is beginning, the changes he's beginning to make in the, in the, in the British Army is that he shows you quite clearly in the uh, Indian campaigns that he fights against the Marathas and, and uh, uh, when he's actually commanding chiefly in the battles of Assay and Argaum is this genius for logistics. And of course, you've got to get logistics right in a place like um, uh, India because you've got long uh, areas, you've got long distances to cover and you uh, have very bad terrain. It's very hard to move an army over it. And he introduces a very clever system called the rolling magazine. Um, in effect, you encourage Indians to bring their supplies and to follow the army. And they, they will sustain the army as it moves around. He's able to move at a much faster speed than anyone ever has before in, in terms of uh, uh, Indian warfare. Uh, now, this has its advantages and its disadvantages because actually the battles of Assay and Argam are both encounter battles. That is, he literally bumps into the enemy and it's then that his tactical brilliance comes into play. Funnily enough, both of those battles, I think, are examples of him probably slightly overstretching himself. And yet, such is his tactical acumen that he's able to risk all. I mean, Assay is a good example. He has 7,000 men, 1,800 of them are British soldiers, the rest are Indian mercenaries, and he's up against 50,000 Marathas. 50,000 French uh, trained with excellent artillery and even better cavalry in a very strong defensive position, uh, and he still uh, bests them, he still wins. And what he learns in that battle against the Marathas, or what he thinks he learns, is that the best way to win in a military engagement is to go in hard. In, in other words, to, sh to use aggression. The problem is he's up against Indian soldiers. And although they were very good Indian soldiers, when he comes back to Europe in 1805, he will ultimately, of course, in the peninsula, be fighting the French. He's asked one question before he goes out to fight the French in the peninsula. Um, he's asked a very important question, actually, by a friend of his. You know, how do you think you're going to get on against this army that has swept all before him? And he said... I know the French are good. They were good in 1794 to 95 when I was in the Netherlands. Uh, uh, I know they're probably even better now. He said, but I will have one advantage over all the other armies, that have all the other generals who fought them. I will not be beaten beforehand. I will use, I, I, I think their system is beatable. The French system, of course, was aggression itself. And what's interesting about Wellesley when he comes back to Europe is how he adapts the aggression that he'd used in India to a different system to take on the French. Now, when he first fights the French at, at uh, Relicia in 1808, actually, it's, it's an aggressive battle, albeit against a relatively small force. But the second battle that he fights is the more interesting one at Vimero, because it's then that he uses the tactics which... To be fair, have borrowed a lot from uh, someone like Wolf. The fire and steel, that the, the 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 use of musket fire into the into the huge French columns to stop them in their tracks, and then you put the bayonet in, and then you drive them back. He uses it beautifully at Primera, where he's outnumbered, 
he also uses uh, light troops, riflemen, of course, uh, famously, to disrupt the French attack before it comes in. Um, but he realizes after Vermeer, I think, that this tactic is fine, but you have to be careful against the French in the peninsula. You have to be careful about risking all. The, the long-term issue in the fight against the French is surviving, is staying in the field, is preventing Napoleon from, from continuing his almost unbroken run of success. And I suppose what's significant about his early victories in the, in the peninsula is that it was the first time, the first time that the French had been uh, defeated. For many, many years, they've, they've defeated the Prussians, the Austrians, and the Russians. And the British victories under Wellesley in 1808 were the first time. So key factors in, in, in the British Army's uh, gradual success in, the, in this period. Wellington himself, he was a genius. Um, I think, actually, when I think of this whole period, if the army does play a significant role, it's because it's incredibly lucky to have certainly two probably the two greatest commanders in its history, Marlborough at one end and, uh, uh, and Wellington at the other. It also has Wolfe in, in the middle too. He's, he's not bad himself. Um, a number of key innovations that are, are made, or at least improvements to the army that are made during his time in the army, during the 1790s uh, and, and early 1800s. One of them is artillery. We actually have, by Waterloo, the best artillery in Europe. Many people think that because uh, Napoleon was an artillerist, he had the best artillery. No, the British did, chiefly because of one thing, that is shrapnel, which had been introduced in 1785. It was a completely new uh, method of killing men on the battlefield, and it was very, very effective. In effect, a shell burst in the air and through balls. It's a kind of thing that we, you know, you, you, all, all artillery today, there is a system for doing that, but it started with a shrapnel. And no one introduced a shrapnel system that was as effective as, as the British we also, had, we also uh, used the elevating screw and the single block trail, which meant artillery was much more manoeuvrable. Um, other key uh, innovations that made the military, uh, made the British Army uh, ultimately uh, be able to uh, take on the French man for man were, interestingly enough, a number of reforms by the much maligned Duke of York, who was not a good battlefield soldier, but was a great reforming uh, uh, commander-in-chief. And he changed the whole ethos of the army. He made it much more meritocratic within, you know, I mean, it's relatively speaking, but much more meritocratic for uh, officers to rise to senior positions. Um, he, he put a lot of emphasis on training, and, of course, he was the driving force uh, behind the introduction of light troops. So that by uh, the wars of the peninsula, these key battles in which the British were the only ones, remember, from, seven, from 1808 uh, for, for a few years, the only ones actually in the field against the French, uh, which kept us in the fight and put it in the hands of a man like uh, Wellington and ultimately you win the sort of victories at Salamanca and Vittoria that throw the French out of um, the, the peninsula entirely. Now, was the peninsula the key battleground? No, of course it wasn't. We know that the French really... Uh, defeat themselves in Russia. But it kept the war going long enough for others to re-enter the fray. That is the key, that's the key story of the peninsula. And of course, uh, Wellington and the British Army play the central role in that, uh, that battle. And of course, finally, we come to Waterloo. Well, it goes without saying that it is a battle that is fought and won ultimately by foot soldiers. Um, what did Wellington himself say after the battle? It was won by two things, the uh, arrival of the Prussians, we've got to give them their due, uh, but also by the tenacity of the British soldier. The British soldier had become, by 1815, in my opinion, the best in the world. And so to sum up, I think uh, it is a, a, 
an assumption by most people that the key role played during this Britain's rise to greatness was the Navy. Uh, the subsidiary uh, factors were the financial revolution of the 1690s, the institution of long-term debt that really made us and gave us the ability to fight for as long as it took in all these wars that I've been <coughs> discussing, the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution, and the Army, in my opinion, has been much underplayed. And yet, these crucial battles that I've talked about, or some of these battles, Blenheim, Ramillies, Dettingen, Minden, all battles fought on the continent and then on to Salamanca and finally Waterloo, without those victories, uh, we would not have become the greatest power in the world by 1815. Thank you. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. That was Saul David. Saul is a historian and author of both fiction and non-fiction titles. His latest history book is All the King's Men, The British Soldier from the Restoration to Waterloo, and that was published earlier this year by Viking. The lecture you are listening to was organised in association with historic royal palaces, who run the Tower of London, Hampton Court, Kew Palace and other royal venues. You can find out more about them at hrp.org.uk. And if you enjoyed that talk, you might be interested in our next lecture, which is taking place at the British Academy. On the 20th of September, you can hear historians Mark Morris and Tracy Borman give talks about the events of 1066, and you'll also get the chance to meet Mark and Tracy and purchase signed copies of their books. For more details, please visit historyextra.com forward slash lectures.
and magazine subscribers will get a discount on the ticket price. Well, that's about it for this week's episode. We shall return next time with the story of the British Navy told by Sam Willis. Meanwhile, do keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. The History Extra weekly podcast is produced by Dave Gibson.